All right. Good morning, everybody. Today we are going to be in one of the most weird passages in all four of the gospel accounts. It's certainly one of the most bizarre in the gospel of Matthew, in which we're kind of going through over quite some time now. Uh, But before we get to all the weird stuff, a couple notes. One, um, you're going to have a bunch of questions based on this passage. I'm not going to answer any of them. Two, um, there's like a thousand different things to cover in this, and we're going to focus in on a few and kind of take a look at some of some big picture issues. Um, So fair warning, not all your questions will be answered in in today. I I think someone at the Hollister campus, they, they denied it. At the Hollister campus, when I said that, that fair warning, I said, like, I'm not going to answer your question. They, they, I, I'm positive I heard, like, normal? And, and then I go, I didn't even take offense to it. It was like, I actually was encouraged that you have all kinds of questions about the Bible. But then I said, did someone say, like, and then it was silent. It's like, no. So, okay. So in order to properly uh, kind of understand where we're at today, we need to do what we've been doing the past several weeks. Just do a brief, quick overview to kind of get the setting uh, right. So Jesus has just come down from the mountain on the, where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. This is where he gives his sort of ethical teachings to his followers. And last week we talked about how Matthew, the author of the gospel, is employing themes, motifs, and patterns from the Old Testament to get you to see Jesus in a certain fashion. Namely, Jesus is the one who comes down the mountain with authority. And that's supposed to make you think of Moses, because Moses is the one in the Old Testament who comes down the mountain with authority and gives God's law. So immediately you are picturing Jesus as a new Moses type of figure. But the thing we're supposed to wrestle with is, yes, Jesus is a new Moses. He's a new type of Moses, but is he something more than that? And then when you're wrestling with that question, Matthew then inserts three miracle stories that get you to begin to kind of think that through more clearly. Because if you look at these three stories that appear after, Jesus healing a leper, a centurion's servant, and a woman with a fever, yes, they can be independent miracle stories with a point. But together, there is significant symbolic value being communicated. So you have a a man who is Jewish who has leprosy. And Jesus reaches out, he touches him, and heals him. And then you have a centurion servant who is a Gentile. And Jesus heals him from a distance. Then you have a woman, Peter's mother-in-law, who has a sickness. And Jesus reaches out, touches her, and heals her. So independently powerful miracles. But together, what you see is that Jesus has the ability, the power, and the authority to heal both Jew and Gentile, male, female, clean, and unclean, and his power can be used in closeness or from a distance. And so you are seeing the extent at which the powers are working. And again, you should be wrestling with, okay, well, this guy's a new Moses type of figure who comes down the mountain with authority, but is he more than this? Because this seems to be doing something more. These are more than just even normal miracles, if any miracle is even normal by definition. Something more here. And then Matthew presents us with two people who are recognizing what we're recognizing. And they come to Jesus and say, we want to we follow you. Like, we want to we be your disciples. And rather than Jesus saying like, okay, it's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. Join me. It's, it'll be awesome. What we saw last week was Jesus actually tells them the cost. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I don't think you actually want what you think you want. 
to ascribe. He says, birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you don't get to rest laying your head down somewhere. We're going to go from place to place, like itinerant street preaching. It's not going to be the easy life. You're not going to get a good reputation. You're not going to have clout among the religious class. And to a man who has a father who says, I want to follow you, but I need to bury him, my my dad first. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And there's obviously more things going on. And if you weren't here last week, you can go online and hear that. But nevertheless, these people recognize something unique about Jesus. They want to follow. Jesus reminds them of what the actual cost is. And then they back down. And sort of we're left in the story being invited to continue this journey and discover the identity of Jesus. Now, immediately after these scenes, Jesus says, let's get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake. And so that's where we pick up. After these miracles, Jesus and some of his disciples, they get in a boat and they've traveled to the other side of the lake and are now, well, when when they land there, they will enter into Gentile territory. But before they land there, this is what happens. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, this is actually not necessarily an extraordinary event for the Sea of Galilee. Oftentimes, because uh, the Sea of Galilee has places where there's ravine-like, ravine-marked hills that kind of climb and ascend, uh, cold winds will come, and then the Sea of Galilee, which rests 600 feet below sea level, they'll come across the ridge and go down off the cliffs and almost be funneled or form like a tunnel, and the wind will come across the sea and create terrible winds, cold weather, and storm-like behavior. So it's not out of the ordinary, but it is a significant type of storm. What is a little bizarre is the reaction of the people on the boat. Because some of them would have been experienced fishermen. They certainly grew up in this area. They would know the region. So they they know what the weather's like. They know what happens on the Sea of Galilee. They've experienced it. They shouldn't have this level of panic. Like, save us, we're perishing level panic. And so we don't know for certain, but it's possible that some of the disciples may be thinking, this is more than just a normal storm. They might be thinking, this is a trial by God, or maybe it's the judgment of God, and we're wrong about Jesus. Like, we can't go into their minds, we don't know. Maybe they thought it was some supernatural type of evil going on. We have no clue, but what should stick out is their reaction. Save us, we are perishing. Now, a clue that gives us into some insights into what possibly might be occurring is a specific word. In verse 24, it says, and behold, there arose a great storm. This, the Greek word for storm here, seismos, it means quake or earthquake. So literally, it's, it's behold, and there was a great quaking of the sea, a great earthquaking of the waters. And so you're picturing the quaking of the ground and the sea waging and these winds coming down, and you get this violent type of scene. It's not just like a little bit of wind and it's raining. You're picturing quaking of the sea. Now, part of the fear that is at play is rooted in the conceptual world of first century Jews. And the conceptual world of first century Jews is highly influenced by the conceptual world of the ancient Near East. And when people at these, these times pictured water or the sea, 
they didn't necessarily picture what we modern people picture. So when we think of the sea or the water or the ocean, we think of good things. Like, who wants to have the house at the beach? Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Like, who, let's have a house at the beach. That's great. I'm not afraid of the water. Um, we, we go, if there's, a, if there's a lake anywhere and there's moderately good weather around it, it'll become a vacation destination. And people bring in boats and they'll do things like water ski. We ski on water and have a good time. And so it's, it's filled with all these positive thoughts. Now, for ancient people, yes, the waters produce food like fish, but sometimes when you go out in the boat, you don't come back. And so in the conceptual world and how they pictured it, the sea was a place of chaos because there's storms there and waves and wind. And so when they picture seas or oceans or waters, they don't have the kind of warm vacation feelings that we do. They picture chaotic waters and chaotic waters that can bring destruction. Now, this is seen in tons of different types of documents from different cultures of the ancient world. But even if you're not familiar with all the kind of history, that imagery is picked up and used in our Bible. And the image is used to say, like, out of the chaotic waters come, like, evil monsters. I'll give you an example. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. And he says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, different from one another. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that usually when there's like, okay, there's water and these discussion of beast, it's usually about to get really weird, and there's going to be a chapter at which like you could barely even understand, because it gets even weirder. It'll be like, and then the, I saw the four beasts, and the first of the four beasts was a goat with three dragon heads, and on each of the heads was seven horns, but on one of the horns, a tiny horn came out. Like, really? It's like this crazy imagery of these hybrid monster beasts. They're composed of, like, different animals. Sometimes they have human-like attributes, but they are hybrid monster beasts, beasts that come out of the water. Okay? Later in the book of Daniel, the dream is interpreted, and we're actually told what the kind of super hybrid monster beats are in this instance. And what we are told, the answer, is usually the answer to what these beasts are in all the other literature. There are monsters that come out of the sea, beast, and they usually, in the literature, represent evil kings opposed to the people of God. So the monsters are dictators and tyrants and evil kings who oppress the people of God and cause human suffering. Okay, so have that image in your mind. Out of the waters come monsters. And these monsters are then told to us to be representative of evil kings opposed to the will of God. You see this in all sorts of literature at the time. And so there's images The Bible speaks of one dragon who comes from the sea and having like seven dragon heads. So this is a depiction, but this is the conceptual world. Now, question. Do monsters come out of the ocean? We're modern people. We know better. Of course monsters don't come out of the oceans. No. Monsters come out of the ocean. Monsters come from the sea. Real monsters come out of the waters. Let me say it another way. 
out of the chaotic waters emerge powerful beast monsters and dragons. Out of chaos come the monsters. Out of chaos, evil dictators and tyrants and kings opposed to the will of God emerge. Do you follow this? Out of the chaos, monsters emerge. Evil kings, dictators, and tyrants who are opposed to the will of God. This is the story of human history. And every time in human history, this is the case. And so oftentimes we look at ancient people, oh, they, they thought monsters come out of the water. They're so, they're so we're, we, we now know better through modern science and technology that there's no monsters in the ocean. First off, you get some HD footage of some of those creatures down at the bottom of the ocean, and there's some monsters down there. Secondly, the ancient people are tapping into greater truths than just, okay, are there, are there monsters? From the chaotic waters, from the places of chaos, emerge powerful beasts who are opposed to the will of God. And you have to understand this conceptual world to actually understand significant verses in the Bible. So here's an example of one. This is from the book of Revelation. This is like, we're at the, the end and God is recreating heaven and earth. It's gonna be great. And then it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now, if you love the ocean, this is terrible news because for all eternity, no more ocean, no more sea, no more water skiing, no more fishing. In fact, no more fish. It's all done. There's no more water. There's no more sea. Now, I can tell you that there are brilliant minds who in commentating on this passages are, are, are trying to figure out how this can work. And they are actually saying things like, okay, in heaven, um, we'll have resurrected bodies, but obviously because our earthly bodies have water in them, the, 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 the resurrected body has to be composed of something different so it could function without water because there won't be any. Or some people saying, uh, water as we know it, H2O, well, the chemical composition will have to be changed and something else function in a similar state to water because H2O won't exist. And, and what, what's happening is, it's a failure of the imagination. And it's not like a failure in the imagination in a bad way, like it's fairy tale stuff and just believe in magic. No, no, you're failing to understand the images in the conceptual world. What does it mean when it says in the, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sea? It means that God has not only defeated the beasts, the dragons and the monsters and the dictators and the tyrants and the evil kings, but he's destroyed the place in which they emerge there will no longer arise any more monsters in the heavenly kingdom. It's powerful. It's powerful imagery. In the new heavens, no more sea. But there will be oceans and lakes and rivers. Because later in the book of Revelation, it talks about rivers by the tree of life. And it talks about a sea like glass. And it's not as if the biblical authors are contradicting themselves. They know what they're doing. When it doesn't make sense, know the Bible is more brilliant and more awesome than your original first glance. It's doing something. And it's a beautiful image of not only the monsters being destroyed, but the thing that produces them. Which brings us back to the passage. And behold, there arose a quaking of the sea. 
so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey? Now, fascinating, Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. That's exorcism-type language. Like, in the Bible, you rebuke a demon. Now, I'm not saying that, that the wind and the waves are like demonic entities, but what I am saying is that Jesus is employing similar language as he shuts down the chaos from the storm, the wind, and the wave. And then you have this image in your mind, the winds and the chaos and the waters, and then all of a sudden, order, calm, peace. And the disciples wrestle with the question that we've been wrestling with for several chapters. Wait a second. Who is this man that even the wind and wave obey? Now, at this point, oftentimes when we look at this story, we take a step back and we say, there's a lesson here. And the lesson is that in life, you will have storms. And these storms will be very difficult, but you need to know that Jesus is in the boat with you and he has the power to calm the storm. Okay, preface. You will have storms in life and Jesus won't leave you. He won't forsake you. So in that sense, he stays in the boat with you, and he does have the power over whatever temporary affliction you might be going through. Okay, accepted, done. But that's not what this story is getting at. If it is getting at it, it's included in a much bigger point. The point is much bigger because we are talking about ultimate things at this point. Whoever can make nature obey Whoever can speak to wind and wave and have them submit, that person has authority over nature, the wind, and the sea. And that communicates something. The person who has that type of authority is the type of person who can silence the sea, who can shut it up. And now we begin to talk about ultimate things. It's not just about a particular storm in a particular location. If Jesus indeed has power over nature, he is one with authority to make all things submit, including the sea, including the place of chaos. Is this one who can defeat the monsters? Is this the one to bring about the new heavens and the new earth? So there's all these layers and images stacking upon each other. And the disciples know it. They know this isn't just some ordinary miracle. Like, who is this guy? Like, what's going on here? This is, yeah, we know you're a son of David, we know you're a new Moses, and we know you have miraculous powers, but now you've just gone even further. So keep this image in your mind. Chaotic storm waters, fear, and death approaching. Jesus, with his words, silences it, and from that chaos comes order, peace, and calm. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Chaos at sea, 
death, the abyss, all that imagery of monsters and beasts, Jesus speaks in calm. Now, he gets to land and he's met by a man of chaos, a man who is depicted in the most darkest of terms. They are almost monster-like. They are creature-like. Let me explain what I mean. This man takes up residence in the land of the dead. He lives in the tombs. Yes, he is alive, but he lives among the dead. He lives in the tomb, which makes him ritually unclean. So you have a man living in the place of the dead who is now ritually unclean. The Gospel of Mark tells us that this man, uh, that there's two of, uh, and Matthew tells us two, but Matthew focuses on, uh, Mark focuses on one, and he tells us that one of them, maybe both, but at least one of them, cries out day and night and takes stones and cuts himself. So there's an image. You are to picture one who is bleeding, who is scarred, who has wounds, if he's living outside like this, with infection. The scarred, bloodied, infected one, the unclean one who lives among the dead. And he cries out at night. So um, what, what typically do you hear screaming or crying out at night? Animals. If you're in the wild at night, the nocturnal kind of predators come out. And so you are given this image of someone who's human, but is having their humanity so, rob, so robbed that they, they have an, a creature-like appearance, a monster-like appearance. And it's terrifying. Out of the tombs comes the unclean one who lives among the dead, bloodied and scarred and infected, crying out. It's a dark image. Now... We need to stop at at this moment because oftentimes when we see people like this, um, we can immediately dismiss them. And what I mean by that is, yeah, that's the crazy person who lives out at the cemetery. Just stay away. They attack people. They'll yell at they're They're crazy. Just let them, just stay away. Okay. And and you can get this idea in your head that they're, they're too far gone, they're too lost type, type of thing. They're crazy, stay away. And in one sense, like, that's not, un, that's not necessarily unwise or illogical. They are living among the tombs, cutting themselves, attacking people. But one of the things you have to remind yourself is the, the, the image of God in a, in a human being. And one of the best ways that I found to do that is with an exercise of picturing an individual in their childhood. Um, children have a, uh, the philosophical term is a telos, and the telos means the end goal or the aim or the purpose. Children have it an end goal, a purpose. They are to be loved and cared for and brought to maturity so that they can become healthy adults that love and serve God. That's the purpose, okay? So when you picture that person who seems beyond hope and crazy, no, you, you remember that, that person was, was a child. And you remember when, you remember like when you were a kid or maybe you've seen a child get excited about something as simple as ice cream? Like tell the five-year-old, tonight we're going to have ice cream. There's like an excitement 
and there's a joy and there's a smile. Or play, play a game with the four-year-old. The game doesn't even make sense, but just the fact that this adult is interacting with them being silly brings them joy. Remind yourself that that person who seems beyond reach was carried in a womb. A woman carried that child in her womb. She felt it kick. She felt its first kick. She remember for the rest of her life. It was a child to be loved and nurtured and cared for, to be given ice cream, to play games with. And we don't know this person's story, but, but something happened. From, from the original purpose that tell us of the child, stuff has happened to now. They are among the dead, in the tombs, cutting themselves, scarring themselves, crying out day and night. And from the place of dead, the spiritual dead man emerges. And what do we see in Jesus? Jesus was in Jewish territory with his people, doing some miracles. And then out of nowhere, Jesus says, get in the boat, we got to go to the other side. Because there's a man among the dead, in the tombs, without hope. And I go to rescue him. I go to claim that which is mine. There is one among the tomb who belongs to me. And you see the rescue mission of Jesus, even for this man. Now, when the two men are confronted, one of them says, Son of God, have you come here to torment me, to torment us before the time? It's a very bizarre question. It's like, have you come to, to torment us before the time? When modern people think about the afterlife, we typically think about dying and going to heaven. Um, and that's not necessarily opposed to what was believed by people in this world, but it, it rests in a different category. The categories that people would have used in Jesus' time was not the afterlife or heaven, but they would have used the age to come. Where you live now, time-wise, is the present age. And then in the future, there is going to be an age to come. The present evil age is called the Alam Haze. And the Alam Haze is filled with suffering, evil. There's the monsters, the tyrants, the beasts that come out of the sea. People oppress the people of God. But in the Olam Haba, the age to come, Messiah is going to destroy evil and specifically spiritual evil. The demons are going to face judgment. And so this particular demon says, have you come to us before the time? Like, why are you here so early? Like, we know this isn't the Olam Haba. Look around. There's all this human suffering, but yet you're here, which does a number of things. It says they recognize in some sense who this man is who Jesus is. But another thing, they reveal to us something much more important, similar to the lesson of the storm. It is not just that Jesus can heal this particular individual of this particular demonic possession. It's much more than that. If he is the one who can cast out the demon, the devil in this instance, he is ultimately the one who at the end will defeat evil. Why are you here so early? Why do you come before our time? That's a statement not just about what Jesus is going to do in the present for this one individual. It's a statement about ultimate reality and the ultimate future. 
This is the one who will come and slay evil. He will slay the monsters. He will slay the beast. He will slay the dragon. Who is, by the way, the serpent of old. So you see what's going on. It's, it's not just Jesus can help us in our current storm and, and Jesus can protect us from evil. Those things are true because of a much greater reality, an ultimate reality. So how does Jesus respond? This is where it gets weird, really weird. If it's not weird enough. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. This is weird. Now it's weird for different, different, there's different levels. If you've grown up in, tradi- in a tradition, a Christian home, you believe in like the supernatural, angels, demons, God, so it's a little bit more easier for you to digest. If you're new to the faith or you're not a Christian, just the fact that we're talking about like spiritual beings is sort of weird. And what I, what I want to encourage you to do is to have an open mind. Most cultures, in most places, all throughout history, not only believed in the supernatural and spiritual realm, they presupposed it. You exist as the minority view. As a modern American, you hold to the minority view that the material world is all that exists. But the vast majority of human beings from the vast majority of other cultures, not your own, held to these things. So try to have an open mind and not arrogantly presuppose that your current culture got it right and understands the inner mechanisms and mechanics of the cosmos. Like have a little bit of an open mind as you approach some of this weird stuff. Because it is weird. Even for Christians, even if you're on board with some of this stuff, you're like, okay, I was on board with it, but how do we get pigs and demons and pigs drowning? Like, this is crazy. And all sorts of questions come to the surface, right? Like, why, do the, why are these demons negotiating a peace treaty with Jesus? And why does the peace treaty, one of the terms is, we get cast out into the pigs, And how does that work? How do they get cast out into the pigs? And then why do the pigs go and jump in the water and die? And by the way, I forgot. Animals can get possessed? What in the world are we even talking about? I'm not going to answer any of that stuff. I just told you. I don't know any of that stuff. But what is interesting, this this is interesting. Okay. The unclean spirit asks to go into unclean animals. Pig. Unclean spirit goes into unclean animals. Because I know, the second I start talking about can animals be possessed, you start wondering like, okay, to what degree? And how does that work? Can, can my pet have a deep? Because, you know, sometimes I wonder. And here's the thing. What you have to see in the text is the unclean spirit's desire to go into unclean animals. And the good news for you today is that the vast majority of your domesticated animals, your household pets, they're not unclean, so you don't have to worry about that. But there are certain breeds of animals that remain unclean. There are certain breeds, particularly of dogs, that still remain unclean to this day. We're not gonna get into all the details, but they're about this big. They're, they're little... They're like chaos monsters. 
little beast from the bathtub that emerge and they bark and they yap and they don't listen. Okay. So, most of you don't have anything to worry about. All right. I don't know all the answers to this. Is very, these are very difficult questions, but it, it, it is interesting that they ask to go into, they, they don't want to be disembodied. The spirits want to be in something. And then they immediately go into these, these unclean animals, the pigs. And um, the pigs then go into the water, and that raises a, a problem for some people, because some people, um, they don't have any problem with it, but so, some of you may be like, wow, if Jesus really like, forced those pigs to go into the sea, it kind of seems a little like messed up. Now, everyone's personalities are different. Uh, I am going to say that if the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God himself, in order to demonstrate his power, has a demonstration of his authority, and some pigs get up ending killed, I am not going to question his authority, and his right over his creation, okay? However, I don't believe that that's actually going on. I think what's taking place is the demons are trying to sabotage the ministry of Jesus in this area, and we're going to see why in a moment. But before we do that, and before we leave this, these verses, you need to have the image back in your mind. There's a chaos man, bloodied, scarred, infected wounds, crying out, demon-possessed. He lives among the dead, and he comes to confront Jesus. And Jesus restores this man. In one of the other gospel accounts, immediately after, it says that the, they are now clothed and in their right mind, and one, one of them is at least, of the two men, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's in the mode of discipleship. So, you have the chaos of the sea and the beast and the monsters that emerge from there. And you have a demonstration of Jesus' authority over all of that. And now you have the chaos creature-like man coming from the tombs, from the place of the dead. And he comes out and Jesus looks into that, speaks and rebukes, and then calm and peace is brought back into the picture. There's powerful images, incredibly powerful. Now what happens next? This is how the passage ends. The, the herdsmen fled, the people who witnessed this, and going into the city, they told everything. They told of everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave. They begged him to leave. So two human beings are healed from a horrible state, horrible bondage, horrible suffering. They're healed. But what happens is the people come out and they say, you have to get out of here. Now, we don't know the motivations exactly of what made the people in this village want Jesus to leave. Maybe they just saw a demonstration of power and that caused enough fear in them to be like, no, we want you gone. Many people, and I hold to this, think there's something more going on. Namely, that if those pigs are killed, that is the economic livelihood of the people in the surrounding villages. That's the economic livelihood. That's, that's, that's their product, if you will. And Jesus gets their pigs killed. Whether, whether they think it was him or whatever, just that's the way it goes down. So that hurts their wallets, right? It hurts. So rather than be concerned 
about two human beings who are restored and put in their proper state of mind, they're concerned about the dead pigs because it hurts their wallet. Which says something. Sometimes the world will choose swine before they choose Jesus. Sometimes the world will choose pigs before they choose the king. And that often happens when it affects your pocketbook, when it affects your wallet, when it affects your paycheck. And that should serve as a warning to all of us. Sometimes we'll pick swine over the king, especially when it's affecting our paychecks. Now, there's more going on because it's like, whoa, what, what is the big picture that, that's going on with all of this? What's the, the, the big, massive, big, big picture stuff? And there's three things I want to focus in on. First, the love of God. This story demonstrates the tremendous love of God. Okay, so we've, if, if you grew up in church, you've heard about the love of God a lot and you can almost be like immune to it. Or um, you have to recognize that you've had 2,000 years of Christian tradition to tell you that God is a loving, a loving God. But like, stop for a second. There is a man who is unclean, who attacks people, who cuts himself, cries out day and night. He lives in the tombs. He is scary. He is evil. He's an outcast. He's kicked out by his own people. So think about the, the edge of, of where you could go to run from God. What would be the edge? What would be the farthest you could go? It would be to live among the dead and be unclean with unclean spirits. And like having your humanity robbed from you daily. That's like the, the edge of the cliff right here, right? Nevertheless, Jesus says, I gotta go. I gotta go to the other side of the lake. So let's get in the boat. Let's cross the lake. And then Jesus gets out of the boat and he goes to the land of the dead, to the unclean land, to Gentile territory, to claim that which belongs to him, which tells you something about the love of God and should tell you something today, especially those of you who wrestle with thoughts of feeling like, yeah, I know about the love of God, but that certainly couldn't be applied to me. And you tell yourself things and you lie to yourself and, and you say like, okay, that's all good, but I don't have any real hope because you don't know how long I've lived this way. You don't know how long I lived in the tombs. Now, maybe they're not literal tombs, but you sure feel like you live in a place of death. You don't know how long I've lived here. You don't know how many times I've hurt myself. You don't know what I've done to others, what people have done to me. You don't know how far gone I am. There is no way. I'm glad you got this hope and I'm glad you have this love. But that doesn't apply to me, man. Jesus goes to the unclean man in the unclean tombs with the unclean spirits to claim which is his. And I want you to know that no matter how far gone you think you are, I speak in the name of the one who calms the sea and the waves and the demonic. It's in his name we come, and in his authority, I tell you, God knows your name. He loves you. He seeks you out. He's on a rescue mission, and you're not too far gone. Today is a day to trust him 
to love him. You're not too far gone. And then on the opposite end of that, for those of you who maybe not feel that way, maybe you're a Christian, you're a believer already, um, we talk about this often, but we need to remind ourselves regularly. These stories tell us no one is beyond the reach. No one is beyond the reach of God. He gets out of the boat and finds you. And now, in his rescue mission, he invites his followers to join him in his rescue mission, which tells us something about the nature of evangelism. We join in his great mission. We are called to cross the sea, get out of the boat, go into the darkness, go into the tombs, find the wounded, the hurting, the suffering, those in bondage, and speak of the good news that we have to tell them what Christ has done for us and what Jesus can do for them and ultimately what Jesus will do for the whole of creation. Because remember, it's not just about a particular instance. There's a much bigger hope that grounds all of this. So we take up that mission as well, and we join the rescue mission of God. And that's grounded and rooted in a hope, a distinctly Christian hope, that Christ just doesn't have the ability to stay with you in the boat in the storms of your life, although that is true, and that Christ has the ability to protect you from evil, although that is true. Our hope is grounded in ultimate reality, that one day this Jesus will defeat the dragons and the monsters and the beast that come from the ocean. And he won't just defeat the dragons and the beast and the monsters, he will defeat the place, the domain in which they emerge from. No more evil, no more suffering. And to the demon's question, have you come before the time? There will be a time when enough is enough, evil is defeated. The dragon, the serpent of old, is slain and the sea destroyed. And because of that hope, we now tarry and work in the present. And we remind ourselves of the rescue mission of God. And we're able to do that because we have a hope. Because let's be honest with ourselves. I'm not crossing the sea and getting out of that boat and going into the tombs if I don't have some type of hope that grounds that. That's too scary, too dangerous. I don't want to sacrifice that much but you have a hope, a future hope, that grounds the present work. Jesus is the monster slayer, the destroyer of dragons, the one who sends the sea to death itself. And that's why we tarry and that's why we work. Now, we're going to take communion in a moment, but before we do so, for the two, two maybe two different types of people in this room, um, if you... And this is the beauty of communion. Um, if you doubt God's love for you, um, and maybe you're, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you are, but you're struggling with this, what we do when we take our the communion is we say that it's not what I tell myself, it's not the lies that have been told to me, it's not even what other people have told me. When we take this, we say Christ died in our place. And so when you doubt we have this thing weekly that we do to say, my doubts submit to a greater authority. They don't have the last word. And so if you are wrestling with those things today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to begin to trust him. After every service, we have prayer counselors and our elders up here. Go ask, and, go ask for prayer. 
and tell them, I don't know how, I don't know what to do, but I want to start trusting Jesus. It's worth it. It's worth it. Trust me, it's worth it. You are in a room filled with people who were once in darkness in the tombs and were called by name and were healed and brought into life and light. And they can share their stories with you as well. So trust Jesus. And then for those of you who maybe not doubt those things and wrestle with those things, um, my encouragement is for you to begin to ask yourself, who are the people that God has placed in my life that I need to speak gospel to? I've got good news. And there are a billion things that distract us, right? Especially in our culture, there's a billion things that can distract us. I gotta do this, I gotta do that. There's this issue, there's this issue. But sometimes you just have to stop, get in the boat, go across the sea, get out and tell that person about Jesus. And so who are those people in your life? Commit them to prayer. Tell yourself, okay, how can I bring this stuff up? How can I begin to share the good news, what Jesus has done for me, what Jesus can do for them, and what Jesus will ultimately do for the whole world? So think about that and wrestle with that. And now let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you doubt, when you lack the faith, when you think horrible things about yourself, you remember. And you put those thoughts in obedience and submission to Christ. This is my body broken for you. We take this and we remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out. And we as a tradition say this is our way to to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. And I just want to remind ourselves of what we are promising to proclaim. The death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. To the monsters of this world are destroyed. To the beasts are no more. And the place from which they come is no more. So, Father, we enter into one last song of worship, and in that we pray that we would honor your son, Jesus, that we would re-pledge our allegiance, that we would worship him, honor him, and speak his truth over our lives. Empower us and equip us for ministry and for mission. We want to join you in your rescue. Help us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.